have you ever had this thought that something you're seeing, experiencing, reading about in the headlines, this is definitely something out of the book of Revelation? Like where it's just some natural phenomenon or something that was so newsworthy, you're like, this has to be somewhere in the book of Revelation. I remember the very first time that I experienced an earthquake, I thought this was it. Because I remember reading or having read to me or sitting in sermons where the preacher would talk about, oh, at the end of times, earthquakes and famines. And I'm like, earthquake? Check. That's it. This must be the end of all things. Now, we were living overseas, and I didn't realize it at the time because I was only 11, but there were about 200 earthquakes a year in that island nation that they were, we were living on. So it wasn't that big of a deal. But that very first earthquake, I remember I was laying in bed. I remember sitting up in my bed, and I tried to repent of all my sins as quick as possible. I remember that was the first time I thought this has to be it. This has to be the end. A buddy of mine tells this story of when he was in high school. Uh, he was in a parked car in a dark parking lot with a girl and he was a church kid and he knew he shouldn't be there. He knew he shouldn't be doing what he was doing. And he saw outside of his window like a huge flash of light. And evidently the fear reflex, the, all the sermons he had listened to, he was like, Jesus is coming. That's what it is. Jesus is coming and I'm in a parked car with a girl. And he talks about how he actually got out of the car, went out to the sidewalk and fell on his knees repenting of his sins. And I can imagine the girl, how do you come back from that? Because Jesus didn't come back and the girl was like, what's this now? And I think he probably just had to drive her home. How did that date end? This is definitely something out of the book of Revelation. Uh, spring 2020, there were about a hundred things that seemed right out of the book of Revelation. Probably things that you've forgotten by now. This is all stuff from spring of 2020. In the middle of a huge global pandemic, there was also these bits of news. Do you remember any of this? The Australian brush fires. I mean, what a, what a, what a scene. And it happened in California too, but I mean, it just seemed apocalyptic, right? Or do you remember? Remember the locust hordes in Africa? Do you remember that? I mean, that's got to be out of the book of Revelation, right? Locusts, come on. Or this, this, some people still don't think this is true, but this photo right here is a, a photo released from the Pentagon of what they called unidentified aerial phenomena which I always thought of, that's a UFO, right? The Pentagon released pictures of UFOs in March of 2020 and nobody blinked. Or how about my favorite, the one that really stuck with me was what they called murder hornets. Do you remember that? Do you remember reading this stuff in the news? I know we were all reading about COVID, but this stuff was happening too. And I know there were a lot of people thinking, this has to be the book of Revelation. This has to be. In fact, there was a meme that you may remember that I thought was captured it so perfectly, but it's just a person squinting. It just says, if you can't read that, it just says me looking outside to see what chapter of Revelation we're doing today. And it just felt like one thing after another, after another. This is definitely something out of the book of Revelation. Now, when we think of Revelation, like our word association are going to be things like, oh, the four horsemen, uh, earthquakes, 666, dragons. Those are kind of the, the, the associations that we have with this book. I mean, it's just like global catastrophe, Armageddon, 
those are the words that we think of. But it's all vague. It's not like we have a clear idea of what's happening. All that happens is we experience an earthquake and like little 11 year old me thinks it's the end of the world. So we don't have like a clear idea of how everything works and how it all fits together. But these are the things that we associate with the revelation. Wild, crazy, global phenomena. So we are finally into the strange part of the book of Revelation, which is saying a lot because the book of Revelation is pretty strange. So in week one, we talked about how we read the book of Revelation is as important as what we read. How we read it is so crucial. Week two, we tried to remind ourselves that there's a bigger world than the everyday, day-to-day chores and life and appointments that we live. There's a bigger world out there than we can see, and that was chapters 4 and 5. Remember, John heard that the Lion of Judah was coming, but then he saw a lamb that looked like it was slain. There's a way out of the mess of the world. Remember we talked about that? Now, we're at week three. It's about to get weird because we're about to enter the section of the book where the wild things are. This is the crazy section of the book of Revelation. But I want you to remember, this is a real letter written to real people who were dealing with real problems. Their problem was not murder hornets or unidentified aerial phenomenon. They were dealing with real stuff. We have a neighbor boy. Liam plays with all the time, and his name's Zach. Uh, And Zach hasn't had a lot of life experiences, evidently, because I took him to Chick-fil-A, he and Liam to Chick-fil-A the other day, and he'd never had Chick-fil-A, and so it was just a joy to introduce him to Chick-fil-A and just watch his pupils dilate when he bit into that sandwich for the first time. It was just, it was magical. Uh, But we've been taking him swimming, and he was so excited to go swimming, and then we got to the swimming pool, and he wouldn't get in more than about two inches. He was nervous about the water, and so slowly we're trying to like like coax him in we're not going to shove him in the deep end that's not my approach to teaching swimming we're trying to coax him in and so finally we got him in the shallow end of the pool and then he said he said i want to try to stick my head underwater okay buddy we'll help you stick your head underwater and he's asking all these questions he's like well what if i drown you won't drown i'm right here and if anything you know if you're under for more than like three seconds i'll bring you back out he goes well what if uh, water gets in my ears and it never comes out that's not how it works buddy why doesn't it work that way? I don't know the science, but it just doesn't work. That it, it'll come out of your ears. He's like, can you open your eyes underwater? Yes, you can open your eyes. He's trying to set expectations for, and it's like excruciating because we're, we're like an hour, like, okay, buddy, today's the day. You can do it. Head underwater. Yesterday, for the first time, he finally stuck his head all the way underwater, and it was just like, he came out, and you would have thought, you know, he had been baptized or something. He was high-fiving. He was so excited, but he just wanted to have his expectations set. What is this experience going to be like? And I think that's true for the book of Revelation. We just want to have a sense of what is the experience of of the world supposed to be like? And I think that's what John is doing. He's writing to real Christians who are dealing with real problems, and he's not giving them lottery numbers. He's not telling them who's going to win the Super Bowl. It's not predictive in that sense. It's predictive in the sense of setting expectations for you as a believer, as a follower, Jesus, what will life be like for you? If you just read carefully, John's answering three questions. The first question is this, why is life hard for God's people? 
Because shouldn't we get some sort of VIP easy pass because we're trying to do the right thing? The second question that's being answered is, what about all the people who don't really know God? What happens to them? Is God, is God fair? And then the third question is, will God do something about all the injustice? This is the flip side of the fair question. Like, there's so much injustice in the world. Is God going to be just and do something about it? Those are the three questions that are being unraveled in this section of the book of Revelation. And this section covers quite a chunk. And we'll walk through it uh, in a way I think that that's going to be helpful but not overwhelming. But uh, over all those questions, those questions just serve a larger point. Really, all those questions are getting at something else. And the something else is, is following Jesus worth it? Is following Jesus actually going to be worth it? All the hardship, all the unfairness, all the injustice, is it actually going to pay off? That's the ultimate question because I think, and I think even for us 2,000 years later, that's sometimes in the back of our minds. Like we felt like, man, I've given some things up to follow Jesus. Is this really going to pan out for me? Is this really going to be good? I look at people whose lives seem so together and they don't really look like they're trying to do the right thing. Why am I giving up things? Does it really all work out? That's the ultimate question being explored. And I think Revelation is setting expectations. Remember, Christians in this era are on the edge, and the heat is beginning to be turned up. If you can remember to two weeks ago when we talked about what it was like to be a citizen of the Roman Empire as a Christian, where worship of other gods and sometimes worship of the emperors themselves was just incorporated into everyday life. So imagine being a Christian trying to navigate that. It would be tough, and things were about to get tougher. And John is setting expectations. What's coming next? What can we expect? I want to give you my, what I think is true, but oversimplistic summary of the book of Revelation, and particularly this section of Revelation called the sevens. We'll talk about that in a second. This is the summary. There are forces in the world that are using every trick in the book to keep us from following Jesus, including death. And it's going to be hard, but no matter how bleak, threatening, or even deadly, being faithful will pay off. So let's dig in. We're going to cover, this is going to be a lot, and you're going to have to buckle up, and I think it's going to be worth it, but we're going to cover chapters 6 to 16. And I know that's a lot. There's seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls, and you've read that before, and you've scratched your head saying, what is that all about? Well, we're going to talk about that this morning. You need two tools to understand this section, and both these tools are a little hard for our brains to grasp. Okay? So you'll have to plug in. Parents, uh, do you ever lecture your kids? Kids, do you ever get lectured by your parents? Yes. Okay. I would, parents are really hesitant. Like, nah, I don't think so. No, no. Your kids are like, yeah, they lecture me all the time. My daughter reminds me all the time. She's like, dad, you've told me this a million times. And I say, well, if I've told you it a million times, why aren't you doing it yet? Right? It feels like I have to tell you again because, and it turns into a lecture and I get it. By the way, did you know this? Evidently, this is true. Evidently today is parent appreciation day. So good job, parents. Like, like, we're really doing well, aren't we? Aren't you, aren't you really proud of yourselves? Kids, don't you think we're doing great? Oh, man, lack of enthusiasm over there. Kids, 
it doesn't always look like you're paying attention. And so one of our tools in our tool belt is lectures. We've just got to tell you how it is, and then we've got to tell you how it is again, and we've got to point out when some other kid didn't do the thing that we said you should do and how it turned out for them, and look at that person. He's homeless, and he's living in a gutter, and it's because he didn't listen to the advice that I'm trying to give you. you got to listen. So we tell you, and we tell you again, and we tell you again, and we phrase it a different way. We, we get it. We repeat ourselves. The fancy term for this repeat lecture is recapitulation. Recapitulation. It's where we actually get the word recap. That comes from this word. We recapitulate that lesson over and over so that you get it. Ancient Hebrew thinkers and writers worked this way. And you're familiar with this, even though you may not realize it. For example, the book of Proverbs is full of recapitulation or parallelism. Let me give you a quick example. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1. A good name is more desirable than great riches. And then he says the same thing with different words. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. It maybe gives you a different angle on it, but it's essentially the same thing. That's recapitulation. That's parallelism. This is restating the thesis over and over again until you feel like somebody's got it. God evidently feels like we need that. So he gave us a biography of Jesus Christ, and then he gave us another one. And then he gave us another one and another one. Have you ever wondered about that? Why are there four different versions of the same story? And I think it's God's because you're going to read it, but you're not going to get it the first time or the second time or probably the hundredth time. But we need to reemphasize it over and over again. And the Old Testament works this way, too. You're familiar with, like, the, the books of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Same story, different emphasis sometimes, but it's the same information. This is recapitulation. It's the, uh, it's the instant replay approach to taking in information. Was the ball coming out of his hands? Was he making a forward motion? Oh, we need to see this sack from another angle. This is recapitulation. It's taking in the same information from various angles. This is how the book of Revelation works. And one of the major reasons we get confused reading it is because Revelation is composed cyclically, but we read it sequentially. And so we're reading it. We're like, I don't know what, what's going on. Why is this all? What, what's happening? So let me give you an example. In this section of the book of Revelation, all right, plugged in, right? Ready? In this section of the book of Revelation, you have seven seals, you have seven trumpets, you have seven bowls. Do you remember last week there was a lamb who looked as if he was slain and he took the scroll from the hand of God, the seven sealed scroll, took it from the hand of God and opened it? Well, that first section is the seven seals. So the way we read it is we read, okay, seven seals. That happened, and then seven trumpets. That happened, and then seven bowls. That happened. That's not the way John is writing, and this is important. John uses recapitulation. Let me give you an example. Uh, this is a little quiz. You guys, this would be good. In eternity, there are some things that the end of the book of Revelation say are not there, that they are not in eternity. They're not in heaven. We even have a hymn that uses this line. But what is one of the things that is not in eternity? Yes, no tears in heaven. When we all finally get to paradise and we're with Jesus forever, there will be no tears. That's not actually what the Bible says. Do you know what the Bible actually says? 
He will wipe away every tear. And that is in the book of Revelation chapter 21 verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And a lot of people read passages like that and like, yeah, life is hard. I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be awesome. That's at the end. But notice what John does is he writes this. At the end of the first section of the seven, the seals, this is what he writes in Revelation 7. 17. For the Lamb is at the center of the throne and will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Right in the middle of the book, he's already talking about this picture of eternity that he readdresses at the end of the book. So right at the end of the seven seals, he's talking about the end. Now, some of you are like, eh, maybe okay. Let me give you another one. Revelation chapter 8, verse 5. This is also at the end of the seven seals. Revelation 8, 5. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of light, and an earthquake. That's where I got it when I was a kid. I knew I read it somewhere. That's at the end of the seals. But look at what's at the end of the next section of sevens, the trumpets, chapter 11, 19. And there came flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, and an earthquake. John, are you just running out of metaphors or what? Or is John describing a sequence of events and then he's hitting reset and he's describing that sequence of events from another angle and then he's hitting reset and he's describing that sequence of events from yet another angle. Three different times at the end of every single section of the sevens, John says the same thing. Interesting. All right. Interesting. So instead of seals and then trumpets and then bowls, it's seals and then reset the story, Christopher Nolan movie style, and then we get trumpets and then reset the story and then we get bowls. If you read these sections sequentially, you'll be all confused. If you understand that John is describing events from different angles, you'll start to see how it all works together. I know it's a lot. It is. This was a familiar approach to composing literature in John's day and age, and it's all through the Bible. So that's the first tool you need to have. The second tool you need to have is that numbers in Hebrew thinking are also symbols. Numbers are symbols. We think of numbers as numbers, right? Numbers are what you do math with. How can a number be a symbol? It represents something concrete and real. But God created the world in seven days, and he said it was very good. And that began the process of using the word seven to describe something that was complete and whole. And the authors of Scripture did it all the way through Scripture. So John uses it all the time. Seven churches, seven seals, seven eyes, seven horns. That's complete. Now, here's what's interesting. If you've read the book of Revelation like I used to do when I was bored in a sermon, I would go to the end of the Bible and I'd read through this. And it wasn't just seven. There was lots of weird numbers in the book of Revelation. There was the number 42, 42 months. There was 1,260 days in the book of Revelation. It's kind of interesting when you think, like, where, what are these numbers? What do they have to do with anything? The calendar that they used was a 360-day calendar. 1,260 days was three and a half years. 42 months was three and a half years. Three and a half is half of what? Seven is complete. Three and a half is incomplete. It's not over yet. Numbers are symbols. Or how about 12? 12 tribes, 12 apostles. 12 is always God's collection, God's organization of people all through Scripture. 12, 12, 12. Numbers or symbols are weird for our literal brains, but we do it in English too, right? 
My mom, I remember her saying, Patrick, if I've told you once, I've told you she said a million times because that probably was closer to true, but a thousand times works too. Were those numbers real, accurate representations of how many times she had told me? I don't even understand that. Told you once. That is a metaphor. Or how about uh, six of one? You're not saying there are 12 of something. You're saying, hey, it's the same either way. It doesn't really matter. That's all you're saying. It's a metaphor. Or this is one we probably don't use in 2022, but uh, you haven't seen somebody in a long time. You haven't seen them in a month of... I don't know why we used to say that or do say that or Travis still says it evidently, but a month of Sundays. That's not a realistic specific number. It's a number as a symbol. So understand in scripture, John uses recapitulation and numbers as symbols. All right. Does that make sense? All right, let's look at these sevens real quickly. We're not going to spend a ton of time, but I think you'll get what's going on in here. The first set of sevens is the seals, that scroll that uh, John was handed. And the first four seals are the horsemen. You have the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? It's a vivid metaphor. And you have white, which he says, which, by the way, Revelation often translates itself for us. It often defines itself for us. But you have the white horse, which is conquering. You have the red horse, which is conflict. You have the black horse, which is about the scales, and it looks like it's about economic hardship and poverty. You have the pale horse, which is death. And he's saying, guess what? Throughout time, you will have conflict and conquering and economic hardship or poverty and death. You're going to have that in this era of Jesus having died on the cross for us. That is going to be the case. And has that been true for the last 2,000 years? We sometimes forget, but yeah, we're in an era of, of warfare and conflict and poverty and death, just like every other era has been since Jesus came and, and before, for sure. Those are the first four horse, horsemen. Now, this seems obvious to us. We're like, yes, of course. But imagine Jesus has only come maybe a decade or so before, before you learn about him and you're thinking okay Jesus is going to inaugurate something new and different and he was but you were going to look around the world and you are going to see warfare and conflict and hardship and death John is setting expectations for these people um, how about this? This is, this is interesting because you can almost sense the people hearing this say, okay, but there will be hardship, but we'll be okay, right? John, we'll be okay. Christians will be okay. And John says in Revelation 6, 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. Imagine being a first century Christian and having that read out loud at church to you. Some of you are going to die for the faith. That's setting expectations. That's intense. Whoa, okay, wait a second. All right, I have to get my head around that. And then you can imagine they might be asking, but John, is anybody going to fall through the cracks? Is God going to forget about any of us? I mean, we're going to be out there all by ourselves trying to be faithful Christians. Are we going to get forgotten or is God going to remember us? And John writes in Revelation 7, 4, then I heard, this is important, then I heard the number of those who were sealed. And he says 144 thousand from all 
all the tribes of Israel. And then you read each tribe and you're like, wait a second. Uh, remember, 12 are God's collections of people, right? But the tribes, if you have your Bibles open, the tribes he lists aren't all tribes of Israel. There's no tribe of Joseph. He, he forgets Dan altogether. This isn't an accurate reflection of Hebrew tribes. He's not trying to say, hey, guess how many Hebrew people will, will be saved? He's trying to say, hey, 12 times 12 times 1,000, a perfect number of God's people are going to be sealed. Because remember, he heard 144,000. But then, verse 9, after this, I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, and every language. And John does this throughout the book of Revelation a lot. Remember earlier, last week, he heard that the Lion of Judah was coming, but he saw a lamb who looked as if it had been slain. And John is helping us reset our expectations. Revelation is translating itself for us. So this first section of the seals is to believers. Are you going to be okay? Yes, God will protect you and he will keep you. You may not survive, but you will be okay. That's a hard thing for Western Christians to wrap their minds around. You may die, but you will be okay. Those two things, things seem incongruous to us. But this first section is about the protection of God's people. And then you reset, and then you get trumpets. And trumpets in the Old Testament are about announcing and warning the army is coming. And we get seven trumpets. This is starting in chapter 8, verse 6 through chapter 11. And the first four are these crazy disasters from the sky. You wouldn't be able to miss them. They, would, they lit up the sky, which is why my friend in the backseat of that car was freaking out. Because he knew there was something in Revelation about big lights in the sky. He knew there was something. Revelation 11.3, John writes, I will appoint my two witnesses. You probably heard this. My two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands as they stand before the Lord of the earth. So if you read the popular fiction series, what they'll teach you is like, oh, you're looking for two individuals that are going to wander around the world preaching. That's not what John's getting at. First of all, the number two is important. And according to Deuteronomy, if you had a legal case against someone, you could not have one witness. You had to have two witnesses. The word witnesses in Greek is the word martyr, someone who will die for the, the truth that they're uh, proposing. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Remember half of that perfect. Clothed in sackcloth, they are the two olive trees, reference to Zechariah, and the two lampstands. Does anybody remember where we heard about lampstands in the book of Revelation? Chapter 1. And John said, lampstands are churches. Churches witnessing to the world of truth. I believe that's what he's teaching here. They will stand before the Lord of the earth. I will have churches witnessing. And so the second sevens are answering this question. Are people in the world going to have a chance? Are they going to hear the truth? Are they going to know the truth? And John's saying, yes, God will make it apparent. God will make it plain. God will make it obvious. They will have a chance to hear the truth. They will know. And then you reset again. And you get the third sevens, the bowls. And the bowls come from the Hebrew temple worship where you poured out the offerings to God and you reconciled yourself to God to make it right. And the bowls are about judgment and justice. Revelation 6.1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. 
not comfortable topic to talk about God's wrath. It seems passe. It seems something uh, old school, and we just don't talk about God's wrath anymore. But in Revelation 16, 7, yes, Lord all go, uh, God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. If God says somebody is condemned, he has been fair. This is true and good. Now, wrath makes us uncomfortable. In fact, I, I know people who this concept has put them off the whole religious thing. They don't want to have anything to do with God because they're like, I don't like this part of God. And that's why a lot of churches just emphasize God's love and God's grace and God's kindness. We don't want to talk about God's judgment. We don't want to talk about God's wrath because it doesn't seem very guest friendly to talk about God's wrath. But this is an important topic within Scripture. Think about it. Some people say, I can't believe in a God who, who gets angry. I can't believe in a God of wrath. And I get it. But what if God never got mad? Really? I mean, could we believe in a God that doesn't get angry at injustice? I could tell you a story about an orphan who was abused and exploited and mistreated. And if you didn't get mad, something would be wrong with you. In fact, being angry at injustice is the appropriate response of being loving. So a loving God, by necessity, has to be wrathful at injustice. And you can see this third section of the bowls. It's all about God's justice. It's all about God's wrath. The problem is, is we conflate human and divine anger. When I get angry, it's usually because I'm confused about something. I'm not seeing clearly. God's wrath is never confused. When I get angry, my anger is destructive. I say things that are mean and, and, and unkind. And sometimes because I'm feeling bad, I want to make other people feel bad. God's anger is never like that. God's anger is redemptive. My anger is self-centered. I'm angry that they cut me off in traffic. God's anger is always altruistic. It's always about other people. God is never going to come home from work upset about something that happened at the office and take it out on his family. God is never going to do that. God's wrath is good and a necessary reflection of his love. I, I could be wrong, and this is just me, because I've had a pretty easy, privileged life. I think the more injustice we have experienced, the less problem we have with wrath. <laughs> I think the more ease and privileged we have floated through life with, the more we get upset about wrath. But I think people who have experienced real, true injustice, they're not upset. They are looking for a God who will bring to justice the things that have gone wrong in the world. I think, that's, I think that some of our, our problem with God's wrath is because we've had pretty easy lives, relatively speaking. So seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Now, there's so much we could talk about. That's just really skimming the surface. And there's a couple things that we need to talk about and we'll get into uh, next week. We're going to explore a little flashback scene that John is embedded in this whole section. And then that section, it talks about the mark of the beast. So if you want to talk about that, we'll be talking about that next week. But here's what John is saying Christians can expect according to Revelation. Life, life will be hard. Life will be hard. I was talking to a group of teenagers early on in my youth ministry, and I asked them, what was the, the, the thing, the number one thing that was different from what you expected versus what was real when you became a Christian, when you decided to follow Jesus? And every single one of them thought, I thought my life would get easier, and it didn't. 
And I think that somehow in churches we've communicated to people that if you follow Jesus, you're just going to float through life and it's going to be easy and there won't be any hardship, but life will be hard. You are not going to get a pass from that. You will have perspective, but you will not get a pass from that. Life will be hard. You may be told that what you believe is not only incorrect, but that it is, it's evil. That what you believe about reality and about truth and about the way the world works is not only incorrect, but it's evil. And you will have to decide what you do in that moment. Am I going to continue believing that or doing that or living that way? Or am I going to give in to the pressures around me? That's what John is addressing, what he's trying to address in the people he's talking to. We're going to be tempted, John says, at every turn to throw in the towel. We're going to be tempted to give up. To say this is too difficult, this is too hard. And here's the problem, is that I don't think a lot of us are going to come to some crisis point in our faith where we're, we're just going along and we're like, well, it's too hard, I'm going to give up on my Christianity now. I think a lot of us are just going to settle for a mediocre version of faith that doesn't really proclaim truth to the world around us because we don't want the trouble. We don't want the difficulty. We don't want to live in a way that gets us any heat from anybody. I think that's what a lot of us have settled for. And I think John would probably write something different to us than he wrote to these believers. He would say, you guys need to wake up. You guys need to get with it to understand that the reality of the situation is not just that we cruise through life and hope we get a lemonade and a hammock at the end of the day, but that there are forces in this world that conspire to push us off the path of following Jesus. And I think many of us have just easily walked away. Not, not that we stop coming to church, not that we stop singing the songs, but that we just haven't said, this is my hope, this is my foundation, this is my truth, this is who I am, this is what I'm about. Difficult faithfulness will always produce more joy than easy compromise. I think if we could try to sum up what John is hoping to communicate to people, difficult faithfulness will always produce more joy than easy compromise. I just came across the, the speech that Martin Luther King Jr. gave the day before he was shot. And I thought it was interesting to read what were the last public words that this man spoke. He relayed a story about having been stabbed a few years earlier. And he was in the hospital and the doctor said, if you had so much as sneezed, that knife had gone so close to your aorta that it would have burst and you would have bled out, internally bled out and you would have died. And he finished this speech by talking about how even getting to Memphis where he was giving the speech had been difficult. They had to guard the plane overnight to make sure nobody had put any bombs on it. They had to check all the luggage. There were threats on his life. But he, this is the words he said when he finished this speech. He goes, I don't know what will happen now. And that's important because sometimes we read Revelation to say, I want to know exactly what will happen now. And that's not what Revelation is about. It's not about telling us the Super Bowl scores or if the twins are going to win the division. It's not about that. It's about telling us what we can expect in life. I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't really matter because I've been to the mountaintop is what he says. He goes, I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go to the mountaintop, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And he says, I'm so happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. And he says, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. 
which is a hymn that we've turned into a patriotic hymn, but it comes from words right out of the book of Revelation, by the way. Of course, we know, less than 24 hours later, he was shot to death. But the difference was his expectations were set. He didn't need to know how are the next 24 hours or 24 years going to transpire, but what am I about? What can I expect? And he knew he could expect hardship and difficulty, and he was not going to change his path despite that. Difficult faithfulness will always produce more joy than easy compromise. 